The reason that I know about raising Arizona, because you had brought up that you weren't sure how you hadn't seen it or heard about it. And the only reason I know anything about it is because this is like one of my dad's favorite movies. He quotes from it. He's, uh, he's big into it. I didn't realize actually that it is a Coen brothers movie until I sort of sat down to to work on this, on, on this episode of the show. But I was conscious of the fact that like, there's a lot more in here than I ever understood when I was first shown this movie at like 14 or 15 or something. It was really weird for me. So like, I mean, I, I knew beforehand going in that it was a Coen brothers movie. So it was really weird watching it. Having seen no country for old men, which is like one of my favorite movies ever. There is a kind of um, like a comedic, it's like a comedic parallel almost to that story. Just because I was was trying to get as much background information as I could on the film. And someone was kind of comparing it, kind of making this sort of like duality, sort of kind of comparison between the two yin and yang sort of thing. Um, Right. Which I thought was, was an interesting sort of, sort of take on the two films. You know, I mean, they, they like their, they're Western and, and that, that, that genre, but it, it sort of struck me just how goofy um, the film was for the time period and the pacing. And like, I, I don't know. I'm not entirely well versed on filmmaking history, particularly like in that, that time period. And one of my thoughts as I was watching it was like, had a film been made that way at, at that time, you know, just like I was sort of thinking about like the, the character of Leonard Smalls and like when they're kind of like first introducing him and there's that scene, I think it's the dream sequence when he's, he's going on that, that monologue about him. And there's these quick sort of intercuts of like, just like fiery hell, basically mm-hmm. just like super fast. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to quiet and just, there's, elements of like of that that i'm like i don't remember ever seeing like filmmaking like this in like an 80s movie before so i thought i just thought it was kind of cool yeah and i think you're right i think it makes use of dreamscapes in a way that is definitely indie like that that i think might you could probably get away with a little more in mainstream film today right but i think that that it's at its time that that sort of surrealist something in a movie that made twenty nine million dollars. There is... was almost this like Adam McKay thing going on in it, mm. like a sort of a predecessor to his style that I that I really enjoyed. Um, mm-hmm. It's a little bit absurdist, and I think that yeah, you know, like okay, so let, well, let's set it up a little bit. So mm. the the film Raising Arizona, Coen Brothers, starring uh, Nick Cage. John Goodman is is in this. Um, it's from 1987, right? And it it has a and it's an indie film that did it like incredibly well. I mean, they probably spent like nothing making this thing, and then they they made 30 million dollars globally or something. So, 
so that's sort of your context. The the story basically follows High and his wife Ed, who meet as High is sort of in and out of prison, and then conspire together to steal the um, whatever it is, the quintuplet child of like the local like furniture store owning guy, the local right? baron, yeah. Yeah, the, the Baron of Tempe. Yeah. <laughs> what you have in it, I think, is, um, I mean, first of all, it's a lot about class, right? Um, you know, and, and as we'll sort of show as we're, as we're going through this and everything. But I think that, like, structurally, it, it bears kind of this resemblance to a lot of the, like, fiction and media about, like, middle class Victorian people. And the sort of weird, like idiosyncrasies of like 19th century British folks who had to do all these kind of sort of strange things and did all of these strange things to sort of like put on the, uh, you know, to put on the airs of a class that they weren't quite a part of, right? But that they could pretend to by dressing and behaving in a certain way. And this is sort of like the American Western version of that genre of, yeah. of like Victorian uh, class tales and, and fiction. Okay. So something that I thought was interesting as I was, after I had finished the film, I wanted to go through as many like Reddit threads as I could just seeing what other people thought about the film. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I, I really enjoyed it. And after I watched the film, I went on to Reddit basically to just get, as many different sort of opinions on the film and, and look through what discussions are, are out there um, on the internet. And like what you just said there, I found like very little discussion on the film's sort of like critique of class and, and, and things like that. It was, it was kind of mind boggling to me a little bit because I'm like, you know, it, it it was almost one of those things where I was questioning my own sort of like take on the film where I was like, is this really intentional by the Coen brothers? And I mm-hmm. thought that was peculiar because that, that was very striking for me as I, as I watched it. I mean, I, th- I have found some stuff that's a lot about like um, at the intersection of like class and gender and sort of pointing out High's wife, Ed, there's that scene where they've, they've stolen the baby. Right. And they've brought, They've invited High's boss, his foreman, over uh, with his wife to have some lunch. And like as Dot, who is the boss's wife, is like explaining all about like, you know, dip tets and savings accounts for colleges and sort of all of these things that the baby needs to have in order for Ed and High to pretend to middle class status. Right. You have ed like looking to high as like the person who's supposed to be like sort of in charge of all of these sorts of things and aware of all of this and that that there's this um that there are different gender roles at different uh levels of class and all of these sorts of things so I'm, i i saw a little bit of that but I, you know i think you're right i think that you know maybe not surprisingly that this movie in 1987 that this was sort of missed but i think that you know what you have in raising arizona is sort of four levels of American society mm-hmm. in the modern American West, right? So you have, you know, at the top, you have the Arizonas, right? Who are like German immigrants who have like changed right. their last name. Um, yeah. You know, they're, they, 
they're presented as sort of the, the, the sort of this apex comedically at kind of the social apex of Tempe, Arizona, right? Um, you know, it doesn't get any higher than being like the furniture salesman with the big loud commercials on TV, right? And so that's, I mean, that's yeah, funny, but they're, they're meant, yeah. right? They're meant to represent, you know, this sort of bourgeois uh, uh, element. And then you have High's boss and his wife, Glenn and Dot. That's who High and Ed are trying to be, right? High and Ed are trying to be Glenn and Dot. And then you have uh, Ed and High, who are you know of this lower class, right? Mm-hmm. And and are are pretending to you know true like middle class status, right? And then you have High's friends from from his life in the bandit underclass, who are like the symbol of you know the Western bandit basically, but in yeah, in yeah. late twentieth century, okay. And that is who High is. Like High is actually of mm. of that class, like. He, the, the whole, like sort of his arc in the movie is, you know, about trying to stop being that person who's in and out of prison in order to, you know, to have a wife and then to have a child and then realizing that or, or fearing that he can't ever escape it becoming, you know, uh, and, and then ultimately turning back to a life of crime and sort of one of the climaxes of the movie. Right. And but so within this, um, you have as we had just sort of left off talking about before we got into the plot, you have highs, like at first you think like metaphorical, like dreamscape of, of his mm-hmm. conscience rebelling in the face of, of having stolen an infant. Right. <laughs> so um, th- there's all, there's this kind of interesting thing as well that happens in it where it's like, so Ed can't conceive high's wife, Ed can't conceive. And actually, neither could Dot or Florence, Arizona, right? So the the two wives of the of, you know higher up the social scale were able to pay for the fertility treatments to conceive, mm-hmm. right? They were you know in in basically Ed's position yeah. as well. Yeah. And it's like you know so like Glenn and Dot they've got like four children and they're all awful. And then you have the the Arizonas, right? The 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 Barons who, you know, had quintuplets, right, as a result of, of their fertility treatments, right? And so, like, the, you know, the children are sort of representing the, the attained class, you know, sort of mm-hmm. in, this, in this movie. And for people who have money, they're able to buy their way out of the, the critical, you know, challenge for Ed and High, which yeah. they can't, which is, uh, you know, getting fertility treatments in order to conceive. So that's what drives them to to steal the child, and that's when High has the dream about the biker, uh, you know, who's leaving nothing but scorched earth in his wake, and uh, and and it first seems very metaphorical, right? Like it, it, I think with it's not until Leonard Smalls literally comes in to Nathan Arizona's uh, office. And says, mm-hmm. hey, that $25,000 you're offering for reward here is $25,000 under what the market will pay for a child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so right. he's like, he's like, I'm going to find this kid. And if you'll pay me the market rate, I'll bring it back to you. Right. And, and at that moment, you realize that Leonard Smalls is like an actual person. It's not like a, a figment of highest dreamscape, but actually like a very real um, sort of embodiment of like the apex of the bandit underclass of which high is actually a part of Leonard's character um, was interesting to me. Cause I mean, I think there's a lot of discussion online about, you know, what, what he represents is he simply just 
another physical person? Is he this like weird physical manifestation mm-hmm. of you know the darker side of high's you know conscious and and all that um so that, that a lot of that's up for debate, but I tend to kind of go with the latter in the case of the film, you know, just because he he sort of demonstrates obviously these these you know seemingly supernatural you know fighting abilities mm-hmm. and you know spawning matches out of thin air or sleight of hand tricks like that and and all that um but he it's he's a he was a really compelling i want to use the word almost elemental like villain mm-hmm. very much in the same way and i thought this was super interesting having seen um no country for old men but anton chigurh right is very much like this character in that they're like Anton's not doesn't doesn't demonstrate like supernatural characteristics like I think like Leonard Smalls does kind of in this film. They both sort of represent this like seemingly like sort of like unstoppable force mm-hmm. that seems these forces of nature that represent I don't know if you want to use the word evil, but We'll, we'll just say that they, they, bo- they both just represent these 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 forces of nature with this sort of like very singular goal, basically, mm-hmm. and they're going to pursue it until their own end. Because in, in the film, like Leonard Smalls is doing that for the baby in No Country for Old Men. Anton Chigurh is like has this just entire super singular goal of getting the money back for, you know, um, for the cartel, the cartel money that that's and he gets rid of you know, anyone and everything in his path to mm-hmm. achieve that goal. And so, you know, and, and Leonard Smalls, like I said, kind of follows the same sort of path a little bit in, in this film. I think that the biggest difference between the two, between Anton Sugar and Leonard Smalls is, I mean, kind of goes to the core of like what the difference is in the morals of, um, what was what originally the book, no country for old men that became the movie. And then, and then the the sort of overarching moral of raising Arizona, Chigurh and no country for old men represents just an unhinged, irrational depravity of modernity, right? Like the the point of the point of that movie is that it's like, you know, the old West has been replaced by like the depravity of urbanity. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what, that's what Tommy Lee Jones's character right. is. You know, he's commenting exactly. on that the entire movie. Yeah, exactly. So he, he he's the one kind of laying it out for the audience, like, right. "Hey, this is the point of the movie." <laughs> right. But I think that yeah, exactly. But I think that Leonard Smalls represents the self-interested depravity that lives in all of the characters in that movie, mm-hmm. right? You know, you have the Arizonas, right, who are self-interestedly depraved in sort of a, a classic sort of bourgeois way, right? You know, um, who wants to who wants to buy furniture from a guy with a German last name, right? Like, and, yeah. and sort of that, um, you know, and it's like, and it's like, they're not even offering, they're offering half the market rate for their, you know, their stolen white child. You know, all the employees are, uh, he, he admits to the cops, like all of his employees are like disgruntled and, and all this sort of thing. So this sort of yeah. very kind of like recognizable self-interested depravity at the, at the top end of, of the class system in Tempe, right? Um, then you have Glenn and Dot, right? Who are meant to embody sort of everything that Ed and High want, but, um, but they're swingers. 
Uh, and that ends up being like the thing that uh, breaks down that burgeoning friendship, right? Is that Glenn yeah. like offers to wife swap with high and for high, yeah. who is meant to represent sort of this, like, um, you know, like, yeah, like he's the underclass, right. But he's, he doesn't have sort of these like uh, crunchy, like, you know, liberal, uh, modern, urbane, like values, right. Like he wouldn't, uh, you know, he wouldn't do something like that. You know, the the managerial class is is depraved because they're beset by these sort of non-traditionalist values. And that ends up being sort of the thing that's that that kind of sets off the rising action of the movie or sort of the rise to the climax is is high punching his boss in the nose. You know, his boss who is like uh, making all these like horrifying, like ethnic jokes about Polish people and like and then it, and that, that's fine. Right. High's like, you know, whatever. But it's at the point at which Glenn wants to wife swap. That's the line for high. Right. It's not the not the jokes about the Polax. Right. It's it's mm-hmm. the wife swapping. So he, he hits him in the face. Right. And of course, high and Ed have their, you know, the there's the things that high and Ed are willing to do to try to have this normal existence, this this idealized middle class existence, which are self-interestedly depraved in a different way than what we see yeah. with the Arizonas and Glenn and Dot. Yeah. And then you have Dale and Evel, who are the underbelly, and they are just unabashedly, you know, of the of the bandit class in, mm-hmm. in uh, that you would could identify across Westerns as a genre in general. But even they have their um their code, their ethos gets undermined because they after they steal Nathan uh Jr., they end up you know, being touched by him and, 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 you know, falling for this, this baby and all this sort of stuff. And so it's like, yeah. um, and, and actually have their self-interested depravity like alleviated by, you know, and, and they become sympathetic in a way they never have been when, right. you know, through this relationship that they end up having with Nathan Jr. After they've done, yeah. you know, sort of the most depraved thing in the movie mm-hmm. as depraved as, as Leonard Smalls by stealing the child for, to you know, to sell. But this is the difference between the the ethic in No Country for Old Men and the ethic in Raising Arizona, which is 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 No Country for Old Men is about like the depravity that's out there, right? That that good people are trying to avoid, and Raising Arizona is about the depravity that lives in everyone. Um. So another film, and this is something that I, another film I would love to review at some point is um, Taylor Sheridan's. Hell or High Water that came out in 2016. Another Western, but I believe it's actually modern. I don't think it's set. Um, it came out in 2016, but I, I do think it's like, I mean, it's set like in that time period. Whereas mm-hmm. like No Country for Old Men came out in 2007, but it was set in like 1980. Um, yeah. So without like kind of veering too far away from this film and talking about Hell or High Water, but that film itself, you know, has um, a lot of commentary on on um, on class and the 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 bandit class, as you put it. Because in the film, basically these these two brothers go on a bank robbing spree in Texas, West Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're without kind of spoiling it. They're 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 using the money to fund a sort of morally gray, you know, possibly righteous cause essentially. And, you know, there's, yeah. My thought earlier was 
there's this really sort of common theme where we see a lot of Westerns like that film, this film, no country for old men use the Western genre to talk about class, Mm -hmm. you know, and like what, and so I'm curious, like why you think that is what, why, why is that? Why has that become an easy sort of setting for filmmakers, writers to use when they want to talk about inequality, urbanization and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, I think if it's unintentional, then it's just because even people who would count themselves as pro capitalist, but like critical of modernity have to acknowledge the way that like traditionalism is broken down by, by capitalism. Right. I mean, this is, this is the reason that like, uh, historically conservatism hasn't been associated with capitalism, right? Like if you, you know, like Edmund Burke was, was a monarchist, right? Like, uh, conservatism, you know, with like a capital C is, is about preserving traditionalism. And so there's a consciousness among conservatives that of this fact, right? That capitalism is a corrosive substance on these traditional um, elements of society, right? It's the mm-hmm. reason that it's like, you know, Glenn and Dot, you know, are supposed to, are everything that High and Ed are like pretending to and think that they're supposed to want, you know, in society and everything, but they have been, you know, corrupted by the urbanity of polygamy, right? Like mm-hmm. that's what we're kind of supposed to see here, right? And that that it's like, this is sort of the inescapable tide of modernity. Right. And that, uh, and I think, so I think that if it's unintentional in Westerns, like that's what it is, but you know, I, I think that, uh, it might be unavoidable, you know, because you can't talk about the West and the West being won or lost or situating a story in a deeply transitory place, not just like physically, like the American West, but like, like uh, historically, right. This is a, the, the, the West is a place of deep transition. You know, it, it's a place of being unmoored from social structures, right. Mm-hmm. It's a place where you can think a whole lot about like what makes people, people and what makes society, society. And in doing so, it's impossible not to talk about and think about class. Obviously to me, the, the more sort of like readily apparent component of the Western genre and why filmmakers might want to use it. I mean, specifically I'm kind of thinking in the case of like hell or high water, there's a lot of, well, well, let me put it this way. A lot of the film's cinematography focuses on the sort of like decay of these Western towns in Texas and stuff like that. And then it really pans toward, um, big, shiny, fancy banks, Mm-hmm. Um, and all that, but you know, it's er, everything else about the town is run down and, and, and right. all that. Um, so it's for me, like, I wonder, you know, is it, is it more so just a, are a lot of these filmmakers, you know, making their own commentary on mm-hmm. capitalism, for example, mm-hmm. um, in, in, in really sort of in, in, in illustrating that because it's, it's very easy to make a commentary, um, on that. 
simply, I mean, there, there's no, there's no, like, for example, in, in, like I said, in Hell or High Water, that much of the cinematography is, is a focus on decay. It's very easy mm-hmm. to, to have a commentary on capitalism in a Western film like that, right. simply through the cinematography. I think it's interesting to think like, okay, so in like the mid 20th century, mm-hmm. a lot of Westerns are set in in like the end of the 19th century, like with the closing of the frontier, yeah, right? right. And that, that that is often sort of what your protagonists are kind of struggling against. You know, it's not just the, the, the indigenous native other, right? But it's also, you know, the intrusion of modernity uh, on the frontier, right? Um, and this, this sort of reconciling this very real social crisis in the United States at the end of the 19th century, which was, you know, a not unreasonable assumption that what had made the United States a cohesive society was that you could opt out, right? That you could just leave and go be out there, right? And so there's this, one of the big things that drives U.S. towards its, the United States towards its modern imperialism is this like anxiety about like, if there's not a frontier out there, if we're not, if we don't right. have that, then what, what, you know, will any of this even work? Is that not the basis for, for, for the society itself? And so I think that the modern Western uh, posits that the new frontier is the wasteland created by neoliberalism, by the end of industrialism, right? That the, the promises of the closed frontier and its benefits right, have left behind a different kind of wasteland, a different kind of frontier. And I think that that may be what the modern Western uh, meditates on, is this sort of of constructing a new frontier, a new West in, you know, sort of the the rotting husk of the promises of capitalism and industrialism and modernity and urbanity. I see. I always think Cormac McCarthy wrote that book like ages ago, and that's a, that is a 2005 novel. No, it's very deceiving in that way. Yeah. It seems like it. Yeah, no, hundred yeah. percent. Cormac. 100%. McCar- so it's so yeah. So I mean, it would be really interesting to ask mm. Cormac McCarthy, like, what do you think about raising Arizona? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I always I always have that in my mind that it's like, oh yeah, No Country for Old Men. Yeah, it was written in you know in the time it's set, basically, sure. and not uh, yeah. The Coen brothers make really good Western films. Ultimately, I mean, let's let's be for real here. And so, I the other thing, I I for some reason thought that this was their first film together. Wrong. Um, they made the film Blood Simple. I don't know if you've seen that in 1984, mm-hmm. um, which was this kind of like dark crime film, basically. And so, I think w- sort of the commentary that I was reading on the internet after I watched this was it kind of shocked people um, that they, they made that film and then they come out and they make raising Arizona, which was this crazy stark contrast um, with, with blood simple, uh, which is cool. I mean, it's, that's, that's, it's cool to have that kind of diversity Mm -hmm. in your, your filmmaking arsenal, but, and then like to have this film and then you pair it sort of with um, No Country for Old Men, which are both Westerns, but, you know, tonally opposite. Mm. 
Oh, the 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 um the chase scene. Oh my god! And I think that it's worth wonderful. it's worth pausing. I think it's worth pausing here. At, you know, the half hour mark in this episode, and and just saying that. Um, yeah, that it's like this movie is fucking funny. And yeah, yeah, and you've got John Goodman, but it's like Holly Hunter who plays Cage's wife, like has won an Oscar. I also just want to say too, I mean, this is like easily my honestly my favorite film I've ever seen Nicolas Cage in. I mean, it is <laughs> it was it was so weird to watch him in his young form in this movie compared to what what we've seen elsewhere. Sure, yeah, you for, and it's like and and every now and then it's like I think what's important with Nick Cage is to like like just imagine like him doing the things he's doing and acting the way he's acting. Like if you were just like in a like standing like slightly offset and just watching someone do it, I think you can be like be like oh that is that would be kind of crazy. So I'm reading this thing and so it's like uh there there is kind of like a a biblical thing in in this story right there it, it does kind of have this sort of like this kind of mythic quality to it and that that, that it has it owes some homage to like homer and like uh, uh some biblical stories but it's funny because I'm, I'm as i'm just trying to look for like references to no country for old men in this it seems like whoever is writing this article on screenrant.com also mm-hmm. lists cormac mccarthy's no country for old men as something the Coens borrowed from for this. And we know that's not true. Cormac McCarthy's book does not come out for 18 years after this movie has been made. Um, like, it, and it can't be, it can't be like an accident that like Cormac McCarthy was like, Oh, like that Cormac McCarthy would be unaware of raising Arizona when he was giving over the rights to this. You know what I'm saying? Like, like to, to make no country for old men. Like he, there must've been like kind of a consciousness about it, but um Nonetheless, it'd be funny to like. He was, I imagine he was a fan of this movie. Yeah. So. And, and that it may have played a role in what he wrote in, in No Country for Old Men. Like, I'm just imagining like my dad being like kind of grumpy at like, you know, because uh, I remember like the last time I saw this movie, uh, like with them, kind of like pointing these things out. Right. And like, um, and it's like, what's weird is that they're not super overt about the fact that like Glenn is, uh, is high's boss either. It's like kind of like a throwaway line later. It's like, they've right. had these interactions right. and it's like, right. it's not till after he's hit him that Ed's like, hi, he's going to fire you. Like You're going to lose your job. And you're like, that's his boss. He's literally his boss. Like, you know, to me at that point, it's like, how is this not like, how do you, how does the rest of it not just kind of click into place? But, but I think that, you know. Uh, it would be possible for people who really love this movie um, to be kind of irritated about the seriousness of, of, of our tone here. And I think it's important to acknowledge that like, this is at its core, like, like a funny movie and, and with mm-hmm. lots of quotables and memorable moments that chase scene is incredible. You know uh, the moment where high steals the truck from the guy like mid chase and he's wearing like uh, you know, pantyhose on his head he opens the door and like points the gun at the guy and the guy looks at him he goes son you got a panty on your head it's something that my dad (laughs) said like the entire time growing up son you got a panty on your head you drive fast (laughs) 
son, you got a penny on your head or, uh, or where he's, he's in there um, having that scene where uh, it's like Dale and Evel are getting the, the like supplies at the convenience store. This made me think of that scene at the convenience store between sugar and and the attendant and no country for Uh old men that, that, which is just like, so like startling and cringe and slow and all of this sort of stuff. And you have kind of like structurally a very similar thing between Dale and Evel and the convenience store attendant, but it's like, it's just drop dead hilarious. Hey, he's blow up in a funny shakes at all. Well, no, unless round is funny. When, yeah. Or like when, when he tells the guy to like count to five, like count to 500 or whatever, um, you know, and and they're like, and they forget the baby. He's a real cheerful little critter once he warms up. I don't know how high this one Six Mississippi, seven Mississippi, eight Mississippi, nine Mississippi. Got some baby grub, baby wipes. Got them diapers in disposable kind. I got me a packet of leaves. They blow up in a funny shape at all? No, just circular. Say, where's Junior? What do you mean, didn't you put him in? No, I thought... Where'd we leave him? I loved the sort of pointed <laughs> like nature of how reckless the cop was that chased yeah. I throughout the scene. Yeah. Like just, just run it, just going after him and just firing a long nose barrel, like revolver, just, just all over, like in in the convenience store, just firing. Oh, it's great. And then how everyone, everyone that, that, that high like encounters throughout that entire like chase sequence, like pulls out a gun. Mm -hmm to get him yeah every store clerk pulls out like a rifle or like a revolver <laughs> it's just so great <laughs> it's gold it's gold and probably cost nothing to make like you think about like oh, chase chase that, scenes are often yeah. like crazy expensive like mm. set pieces for movies yeah. and like that one probably cost three thousand dollars <laughs> i think about like for example the chase scene in um the newest batman film with pattinson <laughs> There, I mean, there's a, there's a scene where he goes after Colin Farrell's penguin and to be fair, might be the best chase scene I've ever seen in film. But it cost and, $12 million. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that, that scene alone cost $12 million to me. So the, 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 the sound of the Batmobile itself was. Yeah, right. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, this is, this is a masterclass in how you can do a whole lot with very, very little. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was just looking at um, the when I was talking about Hell or High Water earlier, um, and this this is a film with like Jeff Bridges, Chris Pine, and like Ben Foster in it, like big name actors, mm-hmm. and its budget was twelve million dollars in twenty sixteen. Well, there you go. It's just I, I just love, I mean, like obviously it has homage, but I, I love like remembering that No Country for Old Men is a two thousand five book, <laughs> and the movie is a seven. And like. Mm-hmm. 
and that that it probably that it probably influenced Cormac McCarthy. You know, this this was well. It's a, it's like an interesting the, sort of like progression to think about because you have you have raising Arizona, and then the possibility that Cormac McCarthy took a lot of influence from that film. Then he makes No Country for Old Men, and then he gets the, the yeah. Then he gets yeah. He gets them to direct his book that yeah they they had influence on which is kind of cool coming full circle like that this is an independently produced podcast you can follow us on twitter at cointelpropod and support more of our work on our patreon page the link is in the show notes and in our twitter bio we'll see you next week on cointelpropod